there's really no universal definition of what global health expertise is. I can't type on Google, how do I become a global health expert and have a list of things I'm supposed to do. As a lawyer or an aspiring lawyer, I know the steps. You go to law school, you do the required four years, five years, depending on which country you are in. Then the next thing is you go to law school, the second level, then you take the bar exam, and then you practice in law firms in some countries. They have different dynamics. Before you can become a lawyer, you can't do that with, with global health expertise. You can't type it. There's really no clear structure of boxes you need to tick to get to that point. And as a result of that, you find that global health expertise is something that people would most likely call themselves. It's like a branding tool or I'm a global health expert. And what that does is that it creates experts by default. You're listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for all things public health and global health. From the sustainable development goals to the social determinants of health, as well as interesting dialogues about the diverse career opportunities that exist in these fields. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so other people like you can benefit from our content. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not necessarily represent any of the agencies or organizations we work for or are affiliated with. In this episode, we explore an interesting paper that questions the conventional definition of global health experts. It's an exploration of how the world has historically defined expertise in this crucial field and the consequences of this definition. You'll hear about surprising imbalance in representation and recognition between high income and low income nations. So if you're interested in reshaping the narrative of expertise in global health, and dismantling the barriers that has held back progress for too long, get ready. My name is LaShawn, your host for this episode, alongside my co-host Purva and a special guest. She is a lawyer and health policy professional with diverse work experience in the public, nonprofit, and international development sectors. Her work is at the intersection of law, research, policy, and advocacy with the focus on addressing health system governance gaps and fostering health equity. She is the host of the Global Health Law and Policy Dialogue platform on LinkedIn and has published opinion pieces and articles on several global health topics with BMJ Global Health, Pulse Global Public Health, amongst others. Currently, she's working in the public sector to drive digital transformation for health and governance around health data for research and innovation. Amaka, welcome to the Public Health Insight Podcast. We're so excited to have you on. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here today. Thank you. (laughs) I'm glad you're glad for being on. (laughs) Exciting. So I wanted to start by visualizing your career on a Google map. So every time I go out, I use Google Maps to just travel from one location to the other. And I often find myself stuck in traffic lost when Google Maps turns into red to show that there's been a collision on the road and I'm stuck in traffic. It reminds us of sometimes how our career can often have different twists, turns, detours. Sometimes you have to take a U-turn. Sometimes there's just barriers in the way that we have to just work around and rethink the way we think. With that in mind, I know that you're a lawyer with the master's level training in health policy and management. What was your journey like to get to the point where you're at right now? Yeah, so it, that's that's a very interesting question. So I started 
as a child wanting to be a medical doctor, I was so sure I was going to be a medical doctor. And along the line, I just realized that my strength was more in the arts and, you know, law and those kind of courses. And I felt really sad because I felt that I was supposed to be a medical doctor. So the way I kind of negotiated it was I was going to do law, but regardless of what I did, I would find a way to come back. But that's just at a high level. For me, it has always been about how do you solve problems, really complex problems. I'm in Nigeria and I come from Nigeria and it was a case of people would have healthcare needs and not be able to access it because they didn't have the funds and they would have to wait to die. That was what inspired me. How do I change that? How do I do something in such a way that if someone actually needs healthcare, they can access it? Uh, and more broadly, the realization that healthcare is just a minor part of what health is all about. Health systems are made up of more than healthcare. So that was kind of fascinating to me. And that realization that we had very few lawyers working in that space to ensure that the different parts, the different moving parts, social sector like education, housing, feeding, that eventually affects a present state of mind that would lead them to needing healthcare was not being addressed. That kind of inspired me to go into that space. So it's been an interesting journey, to be honest, and it, it keeps on evolving. I think there's a podcast called Squiggly Careers. I think that kind of describes my career, Squiggly. <laughs> we all have Squiggly Careers, it seems, especially ones coming into public health, global health, the health space, or like these non-traditional mm -hmm. careers. Mm -hmm. it's, it makes for an interesting career, and I don't regret the decisions I made to get to where I am, and it makes it fun and exciting, exactly. right? And it, you follow your passion, and it makes for a really mm -hmm. exciting story. And it's almost <laughs> not just a multidisciplinary approach from yourself, but it's almost a multidisciplinary passion. Mm -hmm. You have so many different ways that you're passionate mm -hmm. about something. It just makes you better at what you do. And speaking about doing you know expertise and how what you've become such an expert in and we're going to be talking about what global health expertise looks like but before we do that i was wondering if we could talk about what global health is and if you could tell us what does global health mean at its core to you or generally as well that's that's a good question so global health that's an entire debate there's so many articles that kind of talk about what exactly is global health because it's like global health international health public health was the distinction. And I think that's what really gets to the core of global health expert, because global health expert, if you take expert out, is global health. So at the core of it, there's really no central or universal definition of what global health is. But most times when people think about global health, they'll think about governance, they'll think about policy, they'll think about institutions. So most likely the World Health Organization, um, UNICEF, UN agencies, but when you look critically, you would find that the components that eventually make global at regional, national, local, down to the community level. So when you start thinking about it critically, then you understand that it's, there's something off about that term, global health. It seems like a, a dialogue that's ongoing and there's a lot to it. So we'll keep everyone up to date as we can and how it unfolds. And I'm sure there's mm -hmm. a lot of discussion and different perspectives. So it's a very hard yeah. question to answer and there's a lot of nuance. The reason um, I came across some of your work, Amaka, is because you published mm -hmm. a fantastic paper with some of your co-authors called Who is a Global Health Expert? And we kind of alluded to that in some of the questions we've asked you earlier. And really, it was opening to me because as an individual who 
went to school for global health in a high-income country. It allowed me to reflect on a lot of the different things that are coming up in these dialogues in the global health space, and it allowed me, as one of these young professionals in global health, to further reflect and acknowledge different things that are happening in the field. So thank you for publishing this very insightful paper. And really, it's at the very beginning of the paper, you're starting off to talk about how there's a lack of consensus in terms of, un of a universally accepted mm -hmm. definition of global health mm -hmm. expertise and the way it's determined in global health. So can you talk to me a bit about that and tell me about some of the consequences of this ambiguity? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. Um, thank you. I'm glad you could resonate with the piece and it helped you to reflect uh, because that's what I hope it does, make people to pause and reflect. So who is a global health expert is a sequel to a piece called How Not to Become a Global Health Expert. So that was the first one. And in that piece, that kind of answers the first question you asked. There's really no universal definition of what global health expertise is. I can't type on Google, mm -hmm. how do I become a global health expert and have a list of things I'm supposed to do. As a lawyer or an aspiring lawyer, I know the steps. You go to law school, you do the required four years, five years, depending on which country you are in. Then the next thing is you go to law school, the second level. Then you take the bar exam, and then you practice in law firms in some countries. They have different dynamics. Before you can become a lawyer, you can't do that with, with global health expertise. You can't type it. There's really no clear structure of boxes you need to tick to get to that point. And as a result of that, you would find that global health expertise is something that people would most likely call themselves. It's like a branding tool, or I'm a global health expert. And what that does is that it creates experts by default. That's people who have that confidence to call themselves global health experts are the ones we regard as global health experts. And let me just help you, let me just take a step back so you can understand why this is even significant, why are we having this conversation, why is this even important now. The people who are recognized as global health experts are the ones who sit on the table to make decisions that affect countries, policies, laws, programs, who gets funding, what that funding would be used for, and so if someone doesn't really know what they're doing, if they're not an expert in the real sense of it, just by signing a paper, you could alter the life of an entire nation. So that's, that's, how, that's how heavy this is. It's not something to joke around with. It's those people who are regarded as experts that sometimes get to leadership positions. It's those people that have, they have that privilege, they have that access to governments. If governments want to resolve issues, very technical issues. Who would they call? They will call experts. So if we don't have a clear structure on how people become experts and we do not sit down to consider it, that means that any person can, you know, follow whatever the structure is currently and then speak to government, give them advice, and that would alter the course, the destinies, the lives of people in an entire nation or communities. And as it stands, the way the, if whoever is regarded as a global health expert, you would see that there's a skew in terms of location and in terms of other factors. And it seems to tilt more towards people who have the resources. I think it's very important to, to state that 
the one who has the funding calls the shots. That's the way life works. When you have the funding, you call the shots on how things work. So that's why I just, I think it's very important to even set that foundation, why this discussion is significant and why it's important. Having default experts and not having a clear sense of how they got there entails that sometimes you might have people who are not really experts in the real sense of it making key and important decisions. So that's, I hope that's really helpful in a nutshell. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's very helpful because you're right in the field, if you want to become a lawyer, there's specific steps you could take to have that expertise and be trained in that way. In a field like becoming mm -hmm. a dentist, becoming mm -hmm. a doctor, a pharmacist, there are usually steps set, laid out to become a certified expert in that area. I just wanted to kind of, even as a global, like someone who's in global health and, you know, I've done the master's, it's so difficult even as a younger professional trying to figure out a path um, and trying to be like, oh, how do I become somebody in global health? Because there is such a skewed um, demographic of the experts and they come from such a diverse background of education. So you'll have lawyers, you'll have people with MD degrees, you'll have people with PhDs, and then you'll even have people with MBAs now. And so it becomes so confusing to even as a younger professional to try and figure out how to progress on that path. And we'll touch on that a bit later, but I just wanted to make note. And I, so I really appreciate, you know, all the things you pointed out lays out quite clearly that the confusion is normal and it's not it's not like a oh you chose a wrong path because when I try and explain global health to anyone who doesn't understand it it's a whole other feat I think I go in circles trying to talk about it because it's so confusing <laughs> but yeah so based off what we've spoken I just talked about how there's MD degrees and PhDs usually it's those individuals with medical backgrounds health professionals that are considered experts and people would kind of say oh those are the people that we should go to ask about so-and-so in global health. But in your paper mm -hmm. and generally, I think there's been a understanding that there are other areas and professionals that we should be speaking to, whether it's people with lived experience or people from other career backgrounds. Can you detail why we shouldn't be considered expertise as just medical or health professionals? Like who else should we be talking to within global health experts? Yeah, sure. Thank you. That, that's a really good one. Um, so first of all, I would like to acknowledge that when we talk about global health, it mostly deals with, you know, the sciences, it deals with um, public health issues, it deals with healthcare. So by default, you'd be thinking that you should be having that conversation with medical doctors, as well as public health professionals, because that's their space. Um, they deal more with care, with the sciences and all of that. But then when you, as I said earlier on when I started uh, regarding my journey from a lawyer to becoming what I am right now, it was questioning that. Is, is, is global health, is health system transformation or whatever you're doing, does it really fall only on healthcare or is it just an aspect of health systems? And then if you have that recognition that there are so many moving parts there's so many things that impact people's health beyond just healthcare. Um, that would make you then understand why it's very it's a very narrow construct to only regard doctors and people who do public health programs as the experts. Now, let me give a good example. So for instance, let's assume that a community or a country, any part of the world 
um, has been seen to be going through some problems. Let's—I don't want. I'm very weary to use. Okay, I don't want to go to vaccines. Let me just use medicines. They have a, a healthcare challenge or whatever. And then the first thing you think about is vaccines. The first thing you think about is medicines. But sometimes it can be something as simple as just give them access to cleaner water, mm-hmm. deal with the environment, make it more sanitary. It could be something as simple as empowering people to be able to acquire certain skills that gives them the ability to earn more so that they can have access to improved accommodation. You'll be so surprised how much we would spend less in healthcare if we channel some of our efforts in other factors. They call it social determinants of health. That's just one side of it. We also have political determinants of health. Um, we have legal determinants of health. We have commercial determinants of health. So there's so many in, there's so many factors. There's so many things moving. Um, you know what? Um, your health care, your health system, or your health sector is usually a reflection of the state of other social sectors. So if your educational sector and your and your housing sector and your environmental sector is faulty, you'd find that your health sector mm-hmm. you probably have issues. Mm-hmm. So when you have that realization that health is actually intersectorial, not just interdisciplinary, mm-hmm. is intersectoral and the ripple effects from other sectors eventually impacts health, leading to healthcare then that helps you to broaden your horizon. Now, let me give you another example. Um, one of the leading causes of deaths is accidents. Would vaccines or medicines address that? No, just fix the road. How, would you? Would a medical doctor give you advice on how to address that? No. So mm-hmm. that, that's, that, that's, that's just an example. We seem to just limit health, global health, to just the science, the healthcare sides of it. Mm. But sometimes just focusing more on those other aspects would help to limit it. And this is particularly important for countries that have very limited resources chasing several problems. So rather than advising them to just build elephant projects like big hospitals that nobody goes to, it might really make sense to invest in social sectors so that people do not get to the point where they need to use healthcare. We're talking about all this and recognizing outside of medical and health professionals, thinking about all the different sectors and opportunities that people take in tackling some of the challenges that we face in the health space. I think about some of my time working with professionals around the world in terms of tackling neglected tropical diseases. And we are talking about some of the community drug distributors who are, for the most part, volunteers, and they do such an amazing job connecting with the community, Mm -hmm. building trust, educating people on the different ailments that their community suffers, talking about solutions, distributing medicines, answering people's questions. And those are really unsung heroes in all of this as well, because if we're really going to narrow that definition to what global health experts are as doctors, we're really missing out on this huge population of individuals that are not traditionally counted in this defaulted definition. So. Uh, Thank you for sharing all that. It really shows the importance of expanding that definition and really thinking critically about who are, you know, global health experts and the people with true lived experiences and are taking the time on a day-to-day basis to talk to communities, work with them, and really find solutions together. 
And so that kind of brings me as we talk about solutions. You know, we recognize now that experts can come from various sectors. We're talking about social determinants of health, political determinants of health, any sort of determinants of health. And we understand in this conversation that there is extreme value in those areas. So when we're talking about steps that can be taken at an institutional or organizational level to promote intersectoral and interdisciplinary collaboration to ensure that non-health professionals can play a meaningful role in health policies and solutions. How do we go about that at that institutional and organizational level? I think currently we already have that. We have people from different disciplines working. I would say that when I started, it was a little bit more restrained it was very hard. I could hardly find a role that said something like legal or political or policy professional in global health organizations, regardless of their level. But I see a lot of those opportunities now. And not just legal, I see roles like communications, I see roles like graphics, like the whole spectrum. I see a lot of that now, showing that we're evolving with time. And I think one of the things I've learned, I'm not that old, but as you get older, you realize that sometimes, <laughs> you just realize that sometimes time fixes some things. You can talk, 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 but sometimes life finds a way to fix things up. I imagine that this conversation might have been had 20 or 25 or 50 years ago, but I think the pandemic was a disruptor in that sense given that notwithstanding the fact that there was a vaccine and top professionals, public health, medical doctors, scientists came out to actually say, this is something you you can take. There was a huge recognition that there is a lot that goes into just saying, trust the science. We saw a lot of work being done in terms of comms, community outreaches, people from different disciplines lending their voices, There was now a new conversation on how do we collaborate differently? How do we partner differently? How do we actually trickle down our messages to the community level? There was a conversation, I think, um, USAID, different organizations came to the table and said, have we been inadvertently um, misallocating resources or not using limited resources properly by channeling them to certain top NGOs, INGOs, or global health organizations, charity organizations, rather than working directly with global health organizations at the community level. There were such conversations. So I think in terms of broadening the scope, it's already there. The question that remains unanswered is, now that we're widening the scope of people who actually recognize that global health professionals are we also willing to widen that scope to recognize them as global health experts when they show themselves or demonstrate expertise? So what exactly is expertise in general terms is when someone is consistent, executes, shows exceptional traits and resolves issues in a specialized area such that if you're thinking about maybe questions or answers in that area, you have to reach out to that person to provide their own input. So what exactly is expertise? What makes someone an expert in the general sense of things, not just global health? Is someone who performs optimally, is consistent, shows competence and executes. 
in such a way or manner that if there is a question or there is an issue in an area, that's the first person that comes to mind because that person has solutions to offer. So if this is the general definition of expertise and we're beginning to broaden the scope of how we view global health professionals, then if a communications person has performed optimally, has been consistent, is competent and execute, what stops that person from being a global health expert as it relates to communication? I don't know if you get the point I'm making. Okay, so then we have experts that are being recognized from a lot of, you mentioned that this expertise can be sometimes limited outside of global health, can be considered within just medical field. We've talked about how this is not necessarily the case and we need a more global systems type of approach and understanding it. When you talk about the example you gave about vaccines, of course, you know, the WHO, the CDC, they can say as much as they want to about the vaccines need to be taken or so-and-so needs to be done in order to improve the health of so-and-so population or community. But there needs to be the involvement of uh, the people with lived experience, the researchers that are actually from those lower middle income countries and get that expertise. And that doesn't mean that they necessarily have to be from high-income nations. They don't necessarily have to have a certain level of academic degrees or anything. So could you maybe go over about why is it important to have researchers and professionals that are from the communities themselves or even those with lived experience be included within global health and improving the health systems within a certain community? Okay, yeah, sure. Before I, I delve into that, let me make a distinction there are community health workers who, in the real sense of it, some of them might have some medical training, some science training, and some mm-hmm. of them are just frontline workers who have been equipped to go door to door to either communicate and interact with the community, implement whatever health mm-hmm. initiatives that a country or state or community has. That's different from when we refer to people, professionals, in countries who are actually addressing issues, who are competent, who are consistent, who have executed, but are still not regarded as global health experts compared to their peers in Mm. other parts of the world. That's a distinction we need to make. So when we say lived experience, Mm. when we say you need to come down from your high horse and probably look down, we're not just talking about community health Mm -hmm. workers. We're also talking about health professionals from other parts of the world that are actually doing the work, who are providing solutions. Mm -hmm and making something out of nothing, we're saying that if there's someone else from another part of the world that is doing the same, both should be regarded as experts regardless of where they came from. But then going down to lived experiences to researchers, that's a very interesting conversation to have because one of the things I pointed out in how not to become a global health expert was like brief advice on how to make something out of nothing. That's if you aspire to be a global health expert and that's publishing. Most times Mm. you're only in the radar. Uh, You can only get up to the point that people can see you. If you don't say who you are, if you don't demonstrate your competence, it's very hard for us to know that you exist. And the way people Mm. do that is by publishing, right? So for the top Mm. publications that people usually read, and consider to be something worthy of reading, you would find that people from certain parts of the world cannot get their materials or their thoughts in those publications as a result of funding barriers, 
they do not have the money to pay mm -hmm. to publish their thoughts, regardless of how important it is. And then there's also the narrow lens, even in instances where there's financing, it's usually constrained along themes. So let's say that someone already had an original idea, that person might have to either dismiss it or reframe it in such a way that it aligns with existing themes, thereby making us miss out from what the real meat is, if you get my point. So, and then not everyone mm -hmm. has access to that information mm -hmm. to know where the resources are. And so they will not be published compared to people who actually have access to that funding and resource. So they will publish more. You would also see instances where people would go from, go to other parts of the world to work for a short period of time. They would execute projects and then they would involve people from those communities in doing the actual research. But because they have access to the funding, their names are in that paper as against people who actually did the real work. So it's just that dynamic. Right. Yeah. And then given that you would only recognize people who you type and you see their names pop up, it then makes you understand why some people are regarded more mm. as global health, health experts versus other people, even though they might be doing the same work, putting in the same effort, or even more, depending on the kind of work they're doing. Consider that in certain locations, as a result of the restraints that they find, they have to really put in more efforts. Uh, so I don't know if you get the point I'm making. So in terms of research, it's like there are mm -hmm. obstacles that will prevent someone from publishing. There, there are obstacles that will prevent them from having access to resources, doing what needs to be done. And just some people would refer to it as gatekeeping, whatever terminologies are used, but mm -hmm. the fact remains that one of the key ways to be recognized as a global health expert is to have publications. And some people just do not have access to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you mentioned, disparities in research funding mm -hmm. and kind of those research bodies that are funding researchers from these high-income countries, they're coming in, they're not acknowledging the work that's been done from the professionals in low middle income countries, those researchers, there's mm -hmm. this lack of visibility. Where, where do you think the problem is at? Is it the research funding agencies? Is it just a combination of that plus the researchers from high income countries not really thinking contributions are valid from these other parts of the world? What is it? Why is this happening? And what are some solutions that you have in terms of or recommendations you have to kind of adjust yeah, I that. think it could be a mixture of everything things you've mentioned and I would mm -hmm. I would like to mention that I, I can see that some steps are being taken by research institutions to actually address this as well as publishing houses I know that um, Welcome Trust, different organizations that actually provide this funding have actually taken out um, you know, taking that needed step to say, you know what, we're going to, we're going to allocate this funding for researchers in low and middle income countries where they have the autonomy to design their projects and execute it, provided they're doing the actual work, we we'll just let them be. And then on the flips, I've also seen on the news, I've seen instances where people were called out, where publication houses say, if you do not 
actually reflect every single person that worked on this with you. We're going to recall your publication, which is a, which is a good step to take. Mm. And as I said, probably these conversations have been happening for years, but there was just something about the COVID-19 pandemic, that feeling of knowing that you, you never knew if you were going to be alive the next day, that actually brought people to that point where it was no longer about what you knew, but what you intended to do about the information you already had. So people already knew that there were these dynamics that prevented people from doing research and that people who invested and contributed to the research work were not being acknowledged. But the pandemic kind of brought people to that point where they realized, you know what, enough is enough. So you say you no longer want to continue upholding the tenets and institutions of racism, fine. We like the fact that you have put out some picture or some press release saying you you now stand with people. But what do you intend to do about this? And we saw organizations coming out with specific actions. So that's just the way it is. Well, mm-hmm. the point is, the, when you see something is wrong, you can say something about it you can be aware of it to help you inform on how you move, but whether or not things will change depends on whether people are able to move beyond just seeing that what they're doing is wrong, accepting it, and then taking the right step. So it's on both sides. So for those who have that privilege of access to research, now that you know that this is the issue, what do you intend to do about it? Are you going to call it out? Are you going to say, oh, it looks like in this funding stream, the only people who have access to it seem to be from the geographical location. Would you consider expanding it? Or if you're doing a research work and you involve a lot of people who do the intense work of gathering information, analyzing, are you going to do the right thing but by making sure that you acknowledge their effort? So if not, the ball now comes to your court. It's not enough to just say these things. You know what's going on. What do you intend to do about yeah. it? Those are some fantastic points. It, it makes me think about not just within research, but even in terms of making yourself known if you're from a lower middle income country as a researcher. There's a lot of difficulty with people being able to come to conferences. <laughs> they may be experts from these countries. And conferences are where you can get to know people. You can showcase your work. You can show that you're an expert. But they're not able to come because of visas mm. and passports. And there's a whole classicism mm-hmm. with um, the passports and how strong your passport is. And I haven't seen many organizations take a step in trying to resolve that. I know I saw just the one there may be more so please correct me i know women deliver they had their annual conference in kigali in rwanda this year to solve some of that issue and be able to get their partners and their fellow researchers be able to attend they just went to their country or a country that was more easily accessible for them rather than having it in the states or in uk or in canada Mm -hmm. is that probably the best way are there other ideas that you can think of that we can support people being able to come from around the world to these conferences yeah sure that's a really good one i also think there was a recent event grand challenge that was held in senegal and that's those are some oh yes yeah those are some good steps but then you know what i mentioned something earlier on the health systems um, the functionality of health system just goes beyond healthcare, but several moving parts. So the question is, mm. if you did the conference in Kigali or Senegal for the professionals from high-income countries, how easy was it for them to get a visa to Senegal or Kigali? 
Mm-hmm. So that should be the bigger question. It's not about moving it to Kigali mm-hmm. or Senegal. Mm-hmm. It's when you're traveling, ask yourself that question. Mm-hmm. Do you see how smooth and easy? Did any person harass you in the airport? Did any person treat you like a criminal by default? No. Then, mm-hmm. why mm-hmm. is it that when people from certain countries are trying to come to your country, they are treated that way, right? And I know it's beyond mm-hmm. individuals, but that should push that bigger conversation as to why the dynamics are so, why is it so hard? Why is it so hard for people from certain countries to attend these conferences with their dignity intact? And how come you can attend with your dignity intact? So the the point I'm making is, it's great that we're now having these conferences happen in the places where, you know, the people have these issues and actually contributing significantly, right? But maybe Mm -hmm. it would take five years, maybe it would take 10 years, 20 years, 100 years, who knows? But the bigger conversation should be, why is it that you get to travel smoothly and some others can't? That's just a big question. And that's beyond global health. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. See you in the next one.